This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Friday, February 2nd. The federal government earmarks new money for Toronto, meant to help that city house thousands of asylum seekers. We'll talk to Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow about what this influx of federal cash could mean for that city's rising property taxes. Plus, the public inquiry into foreign interference in Canada's elections wraps up its first week. Two former CSIS directors weigh in on the progress made. And the Prime Minister says Pierre Polyev owes Canadians an explanation on his position on high grocery prices. Find out why and what the power panel thinks. Well, Toronto is getting a big top-up of new federal money. The city will receive $143 million to help cover the cost of housing thousands of asylum seekers. This money comes from a new federal fund to help provinces, territories, and municipalities provide shelter for the growing number of refugees coming into Canada. It means, critically, that more newcomers will have a safe and stable place to call home while they get settled in Canada. Toronto says it is currently housing around 6,000 asylum seekers and refugees in its homeless shelters, making up more than half of its shelter population and bringing the system to full capacity. Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow joins me now. Mayor Chow, welcome back to the show. Hello. I'm not trying to downplay the significance of $143 million, but you were looking for $250 million, or at least the city was. So how does this money, which is below that number, how does that uh, handle the shortfalls that you've outlined uh, in your city? Well, this investment is uh, providing a lot of hope for uh, thousands of uh, refugees claimants right here in the city of Toronto. They are... um, quite desperate because when they arrive to international airports, they don't know where to go. And some of our shelters are full. So with this investment, it really helped the city, uh, not only to pay the bills, but to provide more shelter support for those refugees claimants. Um, Last year, the city of Toronto uh, spent 200 million. And last summer, the Prime Minister provided $97 million as sort of a first installment, and this is now the second installment so that we are completely made whole for 2023. But as you know, because they're f- the federal government fiscal year is different than the City of Toronto fiscal year. Ours start in January, mm-hmm. theirs starts in April. Um, this investment today, the $40 million, provides the first quarter. And given how they have completely made us whole last year with the IHAP program, we are confident that they will also do so in this year, this fiscal year 2024. So we are extremely grateful um, that the federal government uh, continue to be a great partner with the city of Toronto. This amount also unlocked the provincial government because the province said that we too will contribute if the federal government uh, come to the table. And, and the fact that they did, it unlocks both level of government's funding for the city of Toronto, which we desperately need. Okay, so when I do the math and I look at what was a $250 million request from Toronto and $143 million delivered from the federal government, you're telling me that's not a shortfall, that's just a difference in budgeting cycles? And you think that gap will yeah. be made up once we get the budget from Christian Freeland sometime in this spring. Is, is that correct in the understanding there? Exactly. Okay, so your, your financial problem 
that the, the, the budget uh, chief had said, if you don't get it, you're going to have to raise uh, taxes by an additional 6% over what you're proposing the budget. That is off the table now. You'll be able to proceed and manage based on the arrangements and the expectations of more money coming from Ottawa. Exactly. Um, so everything in terms of the tax increase is off the table. I just presented the budget yesterday. It's, uh, uh, it's less than a dollar a day increase uh, for residents of Toronto if you're a homeowner. If you are uh, a tenant, we have lowered the, the rate, uh, the multi-residential rate, so the landlord cannot um, go to the tribunal to use the property tax as an excuse mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to jack up the rent. So um, with this investment, uh, it's, it's a good news for the city of Toronto and the, all the residents because then that big amount no longer would come from the property tax base. If you add that with the investment that the federal government did last year, which is half a billion dollars of funding to provide for the city to build housing, build it faster and a lot more, over 50,000 units of housing. So, and quite a lot of them affordable. So we're very excited that on both housing and shelter, there's uh, hope for those people that have been waiting for years to get into some form of affordable housing. So, so how much of the problem does this money uh, allow you to deal with in terms of the pressure uh, the, the shelter system and the housing system has had uh, from asylum seekers and from refugee claimants? We've heard from Francois Legault that they're just sort of at the breaking point in Quebec. I don't know it's a similar situation in Toronto. W- what does this money let you do that you couldn't do before? Well, uh, there's two parts of this money. We talked about the shelter piece. The other piece that's really good is the 19 or the $20 million of housing benefits, which is a rent subsidy. As you know, a lot of the refugees um, in, get a job and um, they would take any job. And um, before they get their work permit to do so, they need a bit of help, a bit of rent supplement. And the 20 million is to provide people that have been homeless or living in shelters, whether they're refugees or single moms or or seniors. We give them a bit of help and supplement their rent so they can find a place they can call home. Mm. Uh, They can cope for themselves, achieve independence, and uh, be able to become... um, established right here in Canada. That too is excellent news. We have so far um, created 3,000 homes for uh, residents of Toronto. With this injection of money, it will be another 2,000 people where they would be able to find a permanent home. They could finally afford the rent and be able to leave their shelter. As they leave their shelter, then we have two more, 2,000 more spaces to bring in some of those refugees claimants coming uh, to, the, uh, to the Toronto airport. Well, the challenge, of course, is that this is money to deal with the system as it, and the population as it exists right now, uh, but the refugee flows and the asylum seekers are continuing, right? Because we have global migration challenges and a lot of people are fleeing to safer countries like Canada. Minister Mark Miller said that even though the new funding is important, the government has to work on on, on reforming the system to deal with the large flows of migration. And you also said that last year uh, saw an influx that no one expected. So 
What's an acceptable number of asylum seekers coming to Canada, coming to Toronto, and, and what do you need to see from the federal government uh, on that side of this challenge? It's totally up to the immigration minister. He has the numbers. Um, we don't have the entire picture across Canada. What I do know, though, Toronto, we used to be called a city of York. When we have 30,000 people way back when, mm. 50,000 Irish refugees arrived to the shore of Toronto because the potato famine was on at the time. And the Irish refugees helped create Toronto. It helped build Toronto. It enriched their lives. Now, at that time, it was very difficult because many of them were sick. They were homeless. Um, they have not a penny to their names. But look, look at the Irish community and look at how vibrant Toronto has become. So I prefer to see refugees or newcomers as... Uh, as a, you could, that, that they help build this country and they will continue to do so. It's just that when they first arrive, they need a bit of help and the city of Toronto are there for them. And as of today, the federal government said that, yes, we too are going to continue our partnership with the city. And we're very grateful for that strong partnership with all three levels of government. Okay, so just as a final point, you say this unlocked unlocks the provincial government. What's Doug Ford yes. going to contribute to this? Do, do, you, are, do you have total clarity on that yet, or are you, are you waiting on, on something from the Premier? We struck a new deal with the provincial government. is $200 million per year right. for three years, which we really welcome. Uh, that new deal also includes uploading the, the big highway gardener and GDP. But is that the extent of it, or does, this, or does this unlock further stuff, Mayor Chow? That, that's what I'm wondering. Is there uh, more that this can uh, trigger? This trigger the shelter and housing money right. from the provincial government, the $200 million per year, which is right. We need it. Okay. Olivia Chow, Mayor of Toronto, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Today concludes the first week of the National Public Inquiry into allegations of foreign interference. The Prime Minister commented today on what is at stake. It is indeed an existential threat to democracy to see the kinds of deliberate undermining and interference of democracies that uh, certain foreign state actors are engaged in. Commissioner Marie-José Og began the public hearings phase this week, and given the top-secret nature of the intelligence, much of the debate so far has been about what can actually be discussed and how. The public release of that information, for the reasons that have been communicated, is necessarily... Um, balanced by the need for these agencies to do the work. Public Safety Minister Dominic Leblanc was the first minister to testify, facing questions about balancing the right for the public to know more versus the right to fundamental secrecy. Well, here to help us understand that delicate question are two former CSIS directors, Ward Elcock and Richard Fadden. Gentlemen, it's good to see you again. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Richard Fadden, I'll start with you. You testified uh, at, at, the, at the inquiry this week. It's the information phase, and it seemed to be table-setting in terms of what we can know and what we can't know, and you suggested that they should focus on higher-level strategic reporting. Uh, where, where do you think we are at the end of this first week? Well, I don't know, but first, what I was suggesting was that the prime minister and ministers don't regularly, regularly receive raw intelligence. So the right. people who get all excited about not seeing absolutely everything should remember that they should not necessarily get more than the prime minister and ministers. 
I think that point was taken by a few people, but my main point was there's a sort of a culture within the, the national security agencies which tends towards protection. Not all the time, but it's there. So I think that when we go into this, we should go into this with a slight inclination towards release while, while accepting that it is impossible to release everything. Lives are at stake, you know, long-term relations between countries and agencies are at stake. But it's sort of a, of a mindset advocacy that I was putting forward because otherwise, I think that the default will be let's try and protect. Now, the prime minister is at the beginning of this. He's not inclined to that and he'll release as much as he can. But I accept entirely we can't release everything. Mm. No, and that's certainly, uh, Ward Alcock, that was the argument against going directly to an inquiry at the beginning of this was, was national security. And that's why I think they spent the week trying to educate, is what they called this, the information phase. How, what do you make of where we are right now? Uh, I, I think that I don't think this went as well as the, the commission on in, into the convoy in terms of explaining to people, because this is a much more complicated area. Having said that, they've at least started the process. I don't disagree with anything that Dick has said. I'm probably more towards less release in some cases than than, than he would be. Uh, but I think the, bro- the problem really is for everybody to understand that the reasons behind non-release are the, the reality of damage to Canada's future security, not not its past security. Right. Uh, the reality is if, if you reveal the operations that you've succeeded in doing now to re- to, to reveal this information, then the future is in danger. And that's that's a bit a bit complicated. Well, one of the issues, too, that Dominic LeBlanc uh, touched on today is that Canada is really a net importer of a lot of this intelligence, right? It comes from 5i partners in, in some cases. And, and so there, there's issues of, I guess, providence and ability to release things if it came from the U.S. or the U.K. or whoever. That is an issue. But I think in this case that the issue is actually more in terms of Canadian information, mm-hmm. because what you're talking about is information, the, the recruitment of human sources in Canada, the recruitment of of people in missions, the penetration of missions potentially, uh, all of which are pretty sensitive things, but are the reason in some cases you know information about foreign interference and espionage in, in Canada. Right. So, so uh, Richard Fadden, on your argument to err towards more transparency and more openness, so you sort of echoed by the words of the Prime Minister, with this tension that exists and the need to protect things for, for national security reasons. How, how able do you think this will be to satisfy the public concerns around foreign interference, to inform the public in a, in a, in a meaningful way that after sort of the political chaos of the special rapporteur process of last year, there could be a confidence in, in where this thing goes? I don't mean by the politicians, I mean by just ordinary Canadians out there. Well, I think part of it is going to be the extent to which they trust Commissioner Hogue. I mean, she has no political background. She's not partisan. She's a judge. I think that will help. Not to say that uh, Mr. Johnston uh, should have been treated the way that he was, but be it as it may, there was an allegation made about his closeness to the prime minister. And once that was made, I think it was lost. But just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, I've argued that a lot of stuff that's relevant to the commission will be analytical material. I can remember several occasions, both when I was director and when I was at the Privy Council office, somebody put things in front of me that were very highly classified, and you sort of develop an argument. You, re- you remove one sentence or two, and you explain why, and all of a sudden it becomes possible to release things. All I'm saying is that with an open mind, we can perhaps do this more often than not. Having said that, I think a lot was going to depend on the commissioner herself, how she explained what's done, 
and, and, and the extent to which the national security agencies do agree that things have to be released. Royal Elkoff, what's your, sen- your sense on that? I mean, it was the crisis of confidence that the politicians were talking about a year ago. I mean, based on how this has been framed out in the first week, do you think this can be a solution to that? I hope, I hope it will be. I, I wasn't in favor of commission, but I hope this will work. Um, uh, I think the reality is that, that um, uh, the commissioner is going to be speaking. The, the politicians will cover what the commission does, mm-hmm. and to some extent they will determine what the interpretation of the commission's success is. That's not positive in all likelihood. Uh, many of the conservatives, I think, have already signaled that they, they have no interest in a, in a, in a, in a successful commission. Uh, having said that, uh, the commission can, as Dick said, uh, with a, a good deal of work, they may be able to assuage the concerns of most Canadians. And if we can get there, then it will have been at least a success. And they have a very narrow mandate. This isn't a commission of inquiry into foreign interference. This is a commission of inquiry into foreign interference and political interference in two elections, which is really very narrow subset of foreign interference, and actually probably not even the most important in some respects. Right. And on your point on the Conservatives, they have uh, written a letter objecting to the fact they don't have full standing, as the government does, implying it's the Liberal Party that has standing, but really it's the federal government that has full standing. So so given that, and, and given you know the, the limited focus, uh, focusing on the last two elections, what are you watching for as this moves into the next phase? Like, what, what is the thing you, you, you want to see or hear discussed uh, at this inquiry? Well, I assume we're not going to hear anything until they come back to public hearings, right. really. So that's going to be some time. And that will really depend on what they see in the documents, I think. So I think it's really too early to come to any conclusion about what we should be watching for. I think the reality is, I, th- I think one of the things that, that I'm really looking forward to is the report from Mensacop. Right. A committee of parliamentarians. They have had access to all the material. It is a professional body. I suspect that we will get the answer, which may give the commission some basis upon which to proceed. So that, that I think, will be really interesting to see if that comes down anytime but, but soon. Just refresh your memory on that. What, we, what in particular about, about the report by Ensecop? What is it that you're looking for from them? Well, I think we will get, I will, I think we will get a confirmation. My suspicion would be that we will get a confirmation of what we saw from David Johnson. Right. That indeed there wasn't a problem in these two elections, um, but they will probably give us some more information about the nature of whatever happened during those election campaigns than Mr. Johnson probably did. Right. So, so Richard Fadden, it, it, you know, the, it does the... the because of the nature of this inquiry, it's, it's not going to be like the convoy where it's every day on TV, right? There's breaks where they have to go in camera and deal with things. But when we uh, start getting more into the public phase, what are you watching for as, as this thing moves along? Well, I'm going to jump forward a little bit, and I'm going to say the combined effect of what Mr. Johnston did, what the commission will collect, and as Ward said, what we can get from NSCOP or anybody else, What I'm looking for in the end are the Commission's recommendations for what we can do to come to grips with foreign interference. I think Ward is entirely correct when he concludes that, you know, there was probably not a great deal of systemic interference in these two elections, but there was a perception that there was interference. And in this day and age in a democracy, the perception is almost more important than reality. So I look to the Commissioner coming up eventually with some real recommendations to try and box in foreign interference to the extent we can while at the same time dealing not just with the foreign interference in our elections, but how these impact on our diasporas. I think it's really important not to forget 
Now, when people are threatened in this country, we owe them an obligation to do something about it, whether or not it's about an election or another policy issue. So just a, a final point on that, uh, Mr. Fadden, uh, the Uyghurs Rights Action Project, they withdrew from this this week because they're frustrated that politicians they believe have links to, to the Chinese government, the Chinese state, have standing in this. Uh, does that in any way compromise the, the integrity of the process going forward in your view that a clearly persecuted group in China has withdrawn uh, from this here in Canada? Well, it's not a good thing. And I hope that the commissioner over the course of the next few months can find a way to bring them back aboard. I think their main preoccupation was that uh, the people that they suspect as being have as having close uh, links with China will have access to all sorts of classified information that might put them at risk. My understanding is that's not necessarily the case. The interveners and those who are given standard are not going to have access to everything the commissioner has. So perhaps with a bit of fine tuning and discussion, they can be brought back aboard. Even if they are not, I hope the commissioner will not miss an opportunity to dialogue with them and any other diaspora group. Okay. Ward Alcock, any final thoughts on that, on, on the withdrawal of that group of the Uyghurs? Uh, I, I think it's unfortunate, the more the merrier in some sense. Having said that, the reality is this is a very narrow inquiry. As I said earlier, this isn't really about foreign interference. It isn't going to answer a lot of questions about foreign interference. So I think from the point of view of the Uyghurs, the issue is the broader foreign interference, not so much right. the interference in two elections. It's unfortunate, but I don't think it actually impairs the ability of the commissioner to do her work. But I would agree with Dick that to the extent that she can bring them back in, it's a good thing. Okay. Uh, gentlemen, always appreciate your time. Former CSIS directors Ward Alcock and Richard Fadden. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. Pleasure. The Prime Minister was in Waterloo, Ontario today to make another announcement on housing funding. But he made a pointed remark about the official opposition's take on grocery prices by putting the spotlight on Pierre Polyev's top advisor. Pierre Polyev has been standing up for months now, pretending that he cares about high grocery prices faced by Canadians. And it turns out that his top advisor is working as a lobbyist for Loblaws. I think Mr. Polyev owes some explanations to Canadians. Okay, Trudeau was referring to Jenny Byrne, the CEO of Jenny Byrne and Associates. Her company, not her, her company is listed as lobbying for Loblaws on the Ontario Lobbyist Registry. And in a statement to CBC, that company said, let's be clear about the facts here. Jenny Byrne is not and never has been registered to lobby on behalf of Loblaws. The work JBNA, JB, Jenny Byrne and Associates, does with Loblaws is limited to the provincial level and focused on expanded access to beer and wine and red tape reduction. Now, sources tell CBC that Byrne will likely be Conservative campaign chair for the next election, which is not a surprise given her tightness with Pierre Polyev. And the power panel is back to dig into this. Marie Vastel, Paul Wells, Jason Markasoff, and Nigan Sinclair. Uh, Nigan, what's interesting here is Trudeau brought this up unprompted. He was not asked a question about this. He wanted to talk about it, and it wasn't a one-off thing. We're seeing this all over uh, social media from liberal MPs and liberal cabinet ministers trying to, to force this point out there. What do you make of this move uh, by the Prime Minister and his team? Uh, the, it's fairly well known that you know political parties have in their back pockets certain pieces of information that upon at the right prompting at the right moment in which the polls reach a certain number that there's information that comes out or they bring into they reach into that back pocket and they bring this out clearly they've had this for a while they have a 
way in which the, you can almost see the glee or the kind of excitement that the liberals have to have a piece of information they can share with the public that draws a fairly direct line. I mean, the company is named after her. Uh, she's we can say things like, well, you know, she's not listed as one of the lobbyists for Loblaws, but uh, it'd be something like thinking about a construction company and criticizing that construction company and going, well, we're only going to worry about what, how they paint the roads and not all the other work that they do. Clearly, there is a side in which Jenny Byrne is involved with this uh, lobbying for Loblaws, whether she's listed as a lobbyist or not. Uh, I'm far more interested in the fact that Previously, she's worked with Doug Ford and been involved in the Ford government. I mean, that's a connection between the Polyev conservatives and the Ford conservatives, which we know have a very different sort of band of camps. I'm far more interested in how that's going to be bridged because I think Canadians generally don't know that lobbyists are involved in different ways. And so I I don't think this is going to be something that's going to carry a lot of weight. But for the Liberals, it's been a very exciting day to release that to the public. You know, uh, Jason, I'm not sure the Liberals are sitting on this because it looked to me like liberal activists sort of were were pushing this on on social media. And and look, Jenny Byrne is not a registered lobbyist for Loblaws. Absolutely true. But she is the CEO of the company that bears her name and gets paid by Loblaws. So there is a connection there. And and when you saw the the way uh, they're pushing this, linking it, Liberals, to the fall economic statement being opposed by the conservatives because they say it has measures to deal with grocery competition is this an argument that could resonate with people do you think i don't know <laughs> i was i i just like i it, it, i mean what resonates these days i'm not the i may not I be know. the best uh, predictor yeah. of that exactly uh when i first saw this because i'm way too online I, I, I saw it with the spreadsheet and the screenshot of the, you know, Jenny Byrne. Jenny Byrne is a lobbyist, and I noticed that the actual names of lobbyists were had were not Jenny Byrne, but the company is. I was uh, surprised that uh, the account that was spreading that was uh, Mark Gerritsen, the MP, and not a Mark Gerritsen fan account. I just didn't, uh, <laughs> frankly, at first, I didn't expect uh, this to be something that um, official liberals would be uh, flagging because um, it was patently clear from the, from the evidence that they were uh, flagging that she wasn't the lobbyist, but her company was. And then to hear it in uh, Trudeau's uh, mouth himself uh, today was a bit more surprising. Um, I guess people will use what they have. Uh, opposition research in war rooms will uh, go to run to the races with what they have. Um, it, you know, the, the conservatives might be familiar with uh, how inconvenient and awkward it can be to have uh, you, uh, prominent figures name um, out there on something that is not related to that figure. Um, they've been using it a fair bit with the Trudeau Foundation, um, <laughs> right. of course, for quite a while. Um, I don't know if they're gonna, you're going to hear liberals uh, say explicitly, hey, what goes around comes around, um, but maybe some of them will be thinking it at this point. Mm. Paul, uh, what do you think of this one? Um, first of all, even though Loblaws is the grocery store that everyone loves to hate, it is a legal business that, pr- that provides valuable service <laughs> to millions there. of Canadians, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I'm not stunned to learn that they want to sell more wine and beer. But um, I I felt bad for poor Simon Jeffries, who used to work here in Ottawa. Hi, Simon. Now he works at at, uh, Jenny Byrne and Associates, gets sent out to say, look, Jenny Byrne has nothing to do with with what people at Jenny Byrne and Associates might be doing with their work days. That's 
that's that's a stretcher. Um, <laughs> I'm also interested on the other on on the other part of what she does with her days. We, we spent the whole day describing her as uh, Pierre Polio's top advisor. Yeah. That's because we don't know her title. We don't know her job uh, description. We don't know uh, whether and to what extent she's remunerated for the work for the Conservative Party of Canada. But I'll tell you this: I can't have a conversation with any conservative in this town that lasts more than three sentences without hearing Jenny won't, Jenny doesn't, Jenny doesn't like, Jenny won't allow. I wonder what Jenny's going to think. I'm worried about Jenny. The conservative leader has a chief of staff, a titular chief of staff. His name is Ian Todd. Nobody knows what he does. But everyone can tell you what Jenny doesn't like. As far as I can tell, the only only title that works for her is that she is Pierre Polyev's chief gatekeeper. Yeah, so, so Marie, you know, uh, on this, the Hill Times, uh, this week in their top 100 list, she's on it because she's really influential. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And they make the point that she's on the morning call every day. So she's obviously clearly a core part of their political machine. And we've seen the, look, the Conservatives have wanted Jerry Butts to testify. They wanted Katie Telford to testify. Mm-hmm. They dragged staff and deputy ministers out. Is it fair ball, as, as Jason suggested, for, for the Liberals to start going after uh, her in this sort of capacity? I don't know. I think so. Um, first of all, apologies to all my lobbyist friends, but does anyone really think that lobbyists only take on virtuous clients? I'm not so sure. Uh, I don't know if we should be shocked that, that her firm represents Loblaws. Uh, and I think it's a bit dishonest by the Liberals and the Prime Minister, just in the choice of words, to keep repeating the the, the top advisor herself is a lobbyist it's for Loblaws. It's factually wrong they know what it's they not said true. there. It's not, yeah, that it's being not said, I think, yeah, it is fair game because every party goes after the other party's inner circle. And she's definitely very influ- influential Sorry, in, in conservative circles um, and has been for years, as long as I've been in Ottawa, 15 years. Um, and the conservatives tend to bend the facts sometimes as well when they want to attack the liberals. And so, you know, if, if you're going to dish out half-truths, then maybe half-truths will come your way. But I agree with Jason. I'm not sure it, it's potentially the most effective strategy to go after the the conservatives clearly the liberals want to attack the conservatives more this year we've talked about it and and the fact that a prime minister brought it up himself in both official languages clearly shows that they wanted to get this message out but i do think that it's probably a bigger potential for impact if you talk about policies if you talk about votes that the conservatives Mm -hmm. took in the house for example we've talked about support for ukraine i don't know if people at home are that concerned that some top advisor whose job is unclear lobbies for loblaws who we love to hate but shop um I don't know if it's the most effective strategy, but hey, they can try different things and see what sticks. But Paul, I'm going to ask you a very Ottawa bubble question, uh, because I think there's some Ottawa bubbleness going on with this thing. My read from talking to some liberal supporters today is they kind of are pushing things like this to scream at people in our profession to say, you need to take a closer look at what those guys are doing instead of always pigpiling on, on the government. And like they have connections here, they have lobbying connections here, they're doing this because of that. And this is sort of the suggestion to try to send a message, I think, in some way, to journalists. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I never get those messages. So, uh, <laughs> the Substack world is left alone? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think it is um, uh, uh, a rare and uh, so far pretty successful chance for the liberals on a narrow issue that doesn't concern a lot of people's lives mm-hmm. to put the conservatives on the defensive. Get the conservatives right. cons- compl- uh, explaining. Yeah, get coordinated uh, exculpatory statements coming out from the conservative side, uh, which for the liberals who've been o- on the back foot for about the last eight months, mm-hmm. it must come as quite a relief. 
Right, and, and, and I, I forgot, I, I wanted to read this. This is a statement from Sebastian Skamsky, who is a, uh, a director of media relations for Pierre Polyev. He's dismissed this tactic, saying, uh, Justin Trudeau's ministers promised to stabilize grocery prices by Thanksgiving. He failed at that, as prices have only increased. The liberals failed and now claim that it's really the leader of the opposition, not the prime minister and government of Canada, who holds all the power. This is laughable and pathetic. Uh, that is uh, part of the statement uh, from the... Uh, Hit a nerve. Hit yeah, a nerve. from the... Cause, well, I mean, it's, it's pushback. <laughs> Nigan, uh, what do you got to say on that? Oh, uh, the, you, the most interesting thing out of this is, uh, I pointed out earlier, is, is that I think there's an interesting kind of schism that may be bridging here through uh, Jenny Byrne from the Ford government to the Polyev government. I pointed that out earlier. But the other interesting thing I've been thinking about for today and looking at is uh, you don't often see the Conservatives uh, kind of in a mode, in uh, quite a reactor, reactionary mode, uh, using language like pathetic, um, they are frequently referring to Justin Trudeau in lots of different ways, but it always seems kind of calculated. Uh, these press releases today, these statements today, uh, seem pretty reactionary and almost over the top, uh, like a nerve's really been hit. And on this issue, I think they weren't prepared or they certainly weren't ready for messaging on this. But that might be because the person crafting strategy and messaging is the one being attacked. I mean, if we're saying that Jenny Byrne is up top and have very influential yeah. perhaps it's because oh, she's uh, upset about this <laughs> that the reaction has been so swift and aggressive maybe uh jason uh, a final word to you uh, quick final thoughts i just want to get it, maybe i'm being a bit defensive but uh, i was just that i was considered what they were doing fair ball uh, it because it's not true that she's a lobbyist i'm not sure if it's fair ball this is just ball games they play uh right this is just uh they're batting one across the way and the other ones and we're just watching these bouncing balls and uh if that was uh the best uh argument the uh that trudeau wanted to make about uh grocery prices and affordability um okay all right <laughs> okay all right we're gonna leave it there i, I thank you guys uh, thank the friday power panel have a great weekend nigan sinclair jason marcusoff paul wells and marie vastel let me watch That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.